Please look with me at Paul's letter to the Romans after just a one-week brief hiatus, I guess, a little trip back to Genesis to get some sort of a feel for what it is that God has created us for and what it is that God intended us to do and to be, uh, hoping, I trust, to give us um, some sense of anticipation about what awaits us when the curse is lifted from the creation and all of the futility and decay and everything else that characterizes life in this sin-plagued world, after all of it is gone, that, that was the point last week, to try and give us some sense of awareness and create a sense of anticipation about what is in store for us. Having done that, we come back to Romans 8. And want to look at verses 26 through 30 this week and next week, but to have these verses in their context, I want to begin reading at verse 12. So please look with me at Romans 8, beginning at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. It means both, you'll remember. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Thanks be to God for his wonderful word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, grant us now your spirit, the spirit who is spoken of repeatedly in this passage. Holy Spirit of God, please come and take the truth of the word of Jesus and press it into our hearts for our good and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know where you are in your life. Okay? I don't know where you are in your life. I mean, I know where you are kind of in this moment because I know you're here. And I make it my business as a pastor to try to know what is going on in the lives of my people. Uh, I try to be aware of the particular struggles and, and the hopes and the joys, the dreams, but the heartaches and the sense of, of loss that my people encounter, even if they're seasonal. I want you to know that. You don't disappear from view just because you disappear from view. We pray for you and we care about what's going on in your lives. I try to make it my business to know what is going on in the lives of my people, but I don't know everything that's going on. I'm not in your skin. I don't know what the particular challenges are this particular day. I don't know where your hearts are aching. I don't know where you're afraid, maybe afraid of facing or dealing with death. Don't know where you have disappointment, maybe related to a child who's wayward. Don't know where you feel some uncertainties because of, a, of an economy that, that seems to teeter back and forth between being hopeful and being cast into a kind of an abyss. Don't know where you may be struggling with some, what we call in our vernacular, besetting sin. <laughs> you know, I, I've said this, I, I'd love to crawl into your skin for just one day so I could deal with your besetting sins instead of having to deal with my besetting sins again. It'd be nice just for a change. But here's what I do know. Here's what I know. No matter your circumstances, your struggles, your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments, here's what I know. I know that you, no matter how you feel, you are not alone. You are not alone in the midst of whatever it is that you're dealing with. For those of you who may be here for the first time or for those of you who may have forgotten that I've said this over and over and over again, I believe the hardest thing about the Christian life is not conforming to some, how do I don't want to say this, the hardest thing about the Christian life is not trying to figure out a way to conform to some moral code or standard. Somebody's list of expectations. The hardest thing about the Christian life 
is believing that the things we affirm with our heads really are true. And that they get down into the business of living in very practical ways. And one of the things that you believe this morning, if you really and truly are a Christian, one who has become a child of the God of heaven and earth, because of what Jesus Christ has done in his life of obedience and his death on the cross. One of the things that you believe, at least with your head, is that you are not alone in the midst of whatever it is that you find yourself. And that's what this passage, among many, many other things, that's what this passage is seeking to press home for us. You're not alone my brothers and sisters, even when you feel the most alone, even when you feel like you're alone, even in the midst of an assembly like this, you are not alone. Let me give you three phrases that all have to do with the work of the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the work of the Spirit in your life. Let me give you three phrases that come out of this passage that describe what he is doing right now in his ministry to you. Number one, he is present completely. He is present completely. Number two, he groans sympathetically. He groans sympathetically. And number three, he prays perfectly for you. He is present completely, he groans sympathetically, and he prays perfectly. First, he, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, is present completely with you. If you're a Christian this morning, this is the implication of verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Or maybe we should say that verse 26 is the implication of this truth, that the Spirit is present completely in all of His fullness with you if you are a Christian this morning. This passage, Romans 8, is exactly and precisely the fulfillment of what Jesus promised to His disciples, that He, Jesus, would send another comforter. Listen to John 14, verses 15 and 16. I know these are familiar to you, and and I know that uh, familiarity sometimes can breed contempt, a kind of contempt. We can say, oh, I know that. Oh, I've heard that. Let's move on to something else. I want you to listen to these words. What Jesus says. John 14, 15, and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. To be with you forever. So that you will never be alone. Here in Romans 8, Paul is in effect appealing to the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus promised that a helper would come 
and the helper has come. And the helper has come to help us in our weakness, in the midst of our weakness. See, I wish I could talk for 15 minutes right now about this reality, this truth, this thing that is at the center of the life of the Christian. What is at the center of the life of a Christian, a true Christian, is this. You are not strong. You are not self-reliant. You are not able. You are fundamentally weak and helpless. And Jesus gives a comforter to us who is with us forever to help us in the midst of our weakness. That is so contrary to American culture, right? Independence, self-reliance, the captain of my own destiny. Christianity stands at odds with that in affirming repeatedly that I am desperately, desperately weak, needy, and helpless. Not the kind of stuff that strong people who get all spiffed up for Sunday morning, not the kind of stuff that we want to hear. But that is what Paul is saying. And Paul is, in effect, appealing to the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus made that the Spirit would come. The very Spirit who anointed Jesus for his ministry you ever think about this? You wonder what the baptism of Jesus is all about? Where John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan and the Spirit descends and alights upon him? Have you ever contemplated the fact that even Jesus in his humanity required the anointing, the empowering of the very Holy Spirit who indwells you in fulfillment of Isaiah 61? before Jesus could begin his ministry of proclaiming release to the captives, of binding up the wounds of the brokenhearted, he had to be anointed by the Spirit. And Jesus says that that very Spirit who first anointed him, empowered him, comes now to anoint, to empower, to enable, to come alongside, to help those who are weak. A couple of things about John 14. The word another has very specific meaning. It means more than merely a replacement. It describes a replacement that bears the same characteristics of what is being replaced. The Holy Spirit bears the same characteristics, the same attributes of the one whom he comes to replace. Who did he come to replace? He came to replace Jesus. He came to replace Jesus who is the incarnation of compassion and wisdom and righteousness and mercy and kindness. When the Holy Spirit comes in fulfillment of this promise, I've said this to you before, He doesn't come as a free agent. He doesn't come to do what He wants to do. He comes to be Jesus. Jesus said to His disciples, look, it's a rough paraphrase, I know you don't want me to go away. I get that. I understand that. But if I don't go away, 
localized as I am at a particular place in particular time, if I don't go away, the Spirit cannot come. But the Spirit, when He comes to do, comes to do in the lives of His disciples the very things that Jesus did in the lives of His disciples. He's not a free agent. He comes to minister to His disciples following across the centuries his death, resurrection, and ascension, fulfilling the very ministry of Jesus in their lives. And here's the second thing. He's called a helper. He is called a parakaleo. He is called one who comes alongside. And so when Paul in Romans 8 says that this spirit helps us in our weakness, he is fulfilling this office coming alongside to help those who need help. It's a great picture of this in, in the film Les Mis. If you've seen uh, the, 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 and there's any number of them out there, but the one I'm thinking of is the one that stars Liam Neeson as Jean Valjean. And after Jean Valjean has been released from prison and and he's found his way to this little town in France and over time has become the mayor of this town, caring very much for the citizens of his town. There's, a, there's something that happens to one of the citizens of the town and, and the scene opens with this man underneath an, an ox cart and the ox cart is crushing him to death and he is weak and he is helpless and he can't do anything to get this load off his back that will crush him to death if it isn't removed. And Jean Valjean comes alongside and shoulders up under this ox cart and with notorious strength lifts the ox cart so that the one who is trapped, who is helpless, who is weak can be pulled out to safety. It's exactly the imagery that's being described here. This one who comes to replace Jesus, this one who is called alongside to help, gets up underneath the things that crush and overwhelm and helps to bear that up. He helps us in the midst of our weakness. That's the ministry of the Spirit. The very Spirit who, according to verse 9, dwells in you. Romans 8 verse 9. Jesus says, if if anyone has Christ, he has the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Anyone who is a Christian has the Spirit indwelling him or her. This Spirit who comes alongside to help. Verse 14, this very same Spirit is the one who is leading you. All who are led by the Spirit, are the sons and daughters of God. And remember, if you can think back several months, that this leading is not the thing that we typically think of when we hear the phrase, the leading of the Spirit. It's not some subjective prompting to move in a particular direction. It's not some inner experience. No, it is the Spirit of God taking those whom He loves by the hand. That's what the language means. And he leads them. And where is he leading them from? He is leading them from from this condition of bondage and fear and slavery. He's leading them in the direction of liberty and freedom. 
He's leading him in the direction of being fully the sons and daughters of God. That's verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. And then it is by the Spirit's ministry among us that we cry out, Abba, Father. And then the Spirit, like there's this conversation going on between what leaps out of my soul and how the Spirit responds to it, my longing for my Father, my need of my Father, the Spirit affirms for me that I am in fact a child of God reaffirming and confirming that great standing and status for me. I can't help but think. I always think of this when I read this passage and and think about my spirit crying out and the, the spirit affirming and confirming my standing as a child. I think about my oldest daughter following her sinus surgery. And I went into the recovery room after her sinus surgery and she's coming out from under the anesthetic and she's got stuff jammed up into her face, into her sinuses. And she doesn't know where she is and she doesn't know what's going on. And I'm standing next to the bed and she recognizes me and she says, Daddy, and I can't believe she said this, but she says, Daddy, please don't be upset with me. And what do I want to do as her father? I want to crawl into bed with her and I want to embrace her and hold her. She's crying out in recognition of her father. And what does the father want to do? Simply say to her, you're safe, you're secure, it'll be okay. You are my child. That's the ministry of the Spirit, the whole thing, and then gets added to it. That he is constantly present with us, helping us in the midst of our weakness. And then here's the second thing. I know this is a perplexing verse, perplexing language to us. But here's the second thing. In the midst of all of this, he groans sympathetically. He groans sympathetically. This is this, what, what Sinclair Ferguson calls this mysterious groaning. Right? There are three groaners in this passage. I've mentioned this before. The creation is groaning. And I am groaning, and the Spirit is groaning. This mysterious groaning that Paul describes in these verses. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Three groaners. One of them is the Holy Spirit. You wonder, what is he groaning about? How is the Holy Spirit groaning? Well, let me suggest to you that the context of the whole passage suggests very strongly that the Holy Spirit is groaning in your behalf for the very things you are groaning for. The Holy Spirit is groaning for the very things the creation is groaning for. The reason I had us read this whole passage is because there are these themes. They're like threads that run through this passage that hold the whole thing together. And they're mutually reinforcing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've already rehearsed it. It's all through these verses. But second, struggle is all through these verses. Struggle 
warfare, suffering, weakness. It's all through these verses. That's what characterizes the Christian life. By the way, if I could just toss a little appetizer out there for this evening. Come and think with us about the revelation. I will just tell you, and maybe I am going to pick a fight with this one. I think it's a fundamentally flawed thing to project out to the end of history some period of tribulation that the people of the 1st century, 2nd century, 4th century, 15th century, 21st century saw only in the future. John says, I, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The revelation is given to the people of God in the first century and for all of the centuries to follow because most of them, unlike those of us who have lived in this country for 200 years, most of them will find themselves in the midst of intense opposition and persecution. And the book is given for their comfort. That's a theme in these verses. Struggle. Difficulty, hardship, weakness. And here's a third theme, glory. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the end of the passage. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Glory is pervasive in this passage. And the fourth thread that ties the whole thing together is groaning. The groaning of the creation, our groaning, and the groaning of the Holy Spirit. What do we groan for? Final deliverance. That's what I'm groaning for. Deep in my soul, I'm not groaning for a bigger bank account. I'm not, frankly, I'm not groaning for better health. I like being healthy. I don't want to get sick. But beneath all of those different kinds of groaning, there is another groaning. I am groaning for final deliverance and final restoration. And that's what the creation is groaning for. We and the creation are groaning for glory, for final restoration. What do you suppose the Holy Spirit is groaning for who is your helper, who is your advocate, who prays for you when you are weak and overwhelmed and you don't know how to pray. He is praying for your glory. That's what he's praying for. How do I know that? Here's how. Here's how I know that. I know that because verse 27 tells me what I've just told you. This is a perplexing verse. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There are two characters here. There is the one character represented by the personal pronoun he and there is the Spirit. Who is the one who searches hearts? Well, it is God himself. God himself who searches hearts. And he searches the heart of the spirit, if you will. 
he looks beyond the words that the Spirit speaks and looks, if you will, deep into the heart of the Spirit. But the Spirit, whose heart, if you will, is fully formed and fully filled by the will of God, the mind of God, the Spirit always prays in perfect accordance with the mind of God. And so God who sees the heart of the Spirit, fully formed, fully shaped, by the will of God. I know the math is confusing here. The point is, the Father and the Spirit are of one mind with respect to you and their purposes for you. And their purpose for you is glory. That's their purpose for you. That's the outcome of this whole thing. That's the outcome of God's saving work. It is that you, verse 28, 29, might be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. I've already sort of segued into the third point. The Spirit is groaning Because what the Spirit longs for for you in perfect accord with what the will of the Father is for you, the Spirit wants your conformity to the image of Christ. That's what he groans for. That's what he longs for. That's what he prays for. And so when he prays, he prays perfectly for you. Every prayer, every petition, every groaning that is too deep to be articulated in language that we can understand, every prayer of the Spirit as your helper and advocate is in perfect keeping with the ultimate goal that the Father has for you, and that is your glory. Your glory. So here's how this gets worked out, or at least these are the questions that come to mind for me as I think about this, as I wonder about this. This is how the Spirit prays for me. How do I pray for me? This is how the Spirit prays for you. How do I pray for you? And let's just make this observation because I think it's very much in keeping with the text here. While the Spirit prays for the same thing for each of us, the thing the Father's concerned about, the thing the Son died to secure, the thing the Spirit prays for is ultimately your glorification, your conformity to the image of Christ. That's what the goal is. That's what they are working toward, that you might be conformed to the image of the Son. While there is one goal for all of us, the Spirit is mindful of us personally and individually. And so the Spirit prays for me in the midst of my weakness and the particular contours of my helplessness. Having said that, how do I pray for me? How do I pray for you? 
Paul is we're going to look at this in greater detail next week. But let me just let me just glance off of this verse. Again, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Some of the versions render it, we know that God works all things together for good. All things. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, when you see the word all in the text, you've got to cast a big net around everything. All means all. And so if God is working with the final outcome that I be conformed to the image of the Son and the Spirit who knows perfectly the mind of God and the Father who sees beyond the words into the very heart and soul of the Spirit, they're of one mind about this in wanting that for us. The Spirit in the midst of my circumstances, the Father working all of these circumstances in the direction of that final end and aim. My question becomes, how do I pray for me and how do I pray for you? I'm not making fun. I'm not picking fights. But too many prayer meetings, I'll say this tongue-in-cheek, please don't guffaw, too many prayer meetings become organ recitals. They become lists of bodily organs and functions about which we pray. Someone's heart, someone's liver, someone's leg. Look, let's pray for those things. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 admonishes us to pray for everything with prayer and supplication, letting our requests be made known to God. Let's pray for people's illnesses. Let's pray for people's sicknesses. Let's pray for people to recover from these things. I am only one nano fraction as thankful for the fact that Bob Wisniewski is here as is his wife, Sherry. Let's pray for these things. But my brothers and sisters, How often do we pray? How often do I pray? God, give grace to this person who is suffering from cancer so that this person may glorify God in and with and through this cancer. How often do I pray that? I will tell you, I am absolutely convinced that is what the Spirit is praying. God, give grace to this woman who is estranged from her husband so that she may have grace to glorify Christ in the midst of her suffering. God, give grace to to my dear friend who is dying of cancer so that he may have grace to die well, bringing glory to God in the midst of his or her death. 
I'm not saying we don't pray for recovery. I'm not saying we don't pray for healing. I'm suggesting to you that as we pray, we develop the mind of the Spirit who is concerned about one thing and one thing only ultimately for me, and that is my glory, that my glory would bring glory to God who has redeemed me. Am I making sense? This is hard, folks. We pray for people to get well, but we pray that God will give grace to us in the midst of our sufferings, our weakness, our afflictions, so that in the midst of them, we might bring glory to the God who has redeemed us for this very purpose. He's working all things together for the ultimate good of those who love him. Now, I could very well have emptied out this church with this sermon because I know this runs counter to so much of what we hear. But my brothers and sisters, our praying really does need to reflect the praying of the Spirit who groans for us and who longs for us to know what we in our souls most want to know, and that is our own conformity to the image of the Son, which is our glorification, which is our glory. May God give us grace. May God give us grace in the midst of our sufferings to suffer well and to his glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a tough word. It's a tough word to preach. It's a tough word to hear. Lord, I look out at this congregation and I know people are suffering. I know they feel weakness. But you, Lord Jesus, know it far more fully and far more completely than I ever will. But my prayer for myself and my prayer for this flock is that you would give us grace. Give us grace in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our fears, so that we might be afraid to your glory, so that we might be weak to your glory, so that we might suffer to your glory. Lord, come and by your Spirit minister this grace deeply into our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.